You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps and Onyx Hunt. Now, you guys have heard me talk about Onyx a lot over the course of the last couple months, and I love the digital mapping uh, that you can do on this app. Uh, I love the fact that you can journal uh, all of your encounters, you can document, sign, you can basically tell a story on that app. But one of the cool things that really sticks out to me and one thing that I've been using a lot this year is the ability to attach a photo to a waypoint. And for me, that's a big deal. So when I'm digging through my trail camera locations or my uh, tree stand locations, I can attach an image and say, okay, this trail camera has this buck showing up on it, or this tree stand, I had an encounter with this buck. And it, it, is just one of those things that again helps me make faster decisions you know based off wind direction based off access routes based off of time of year crop rotation right but that photo allows me to know what deer are in the area and it allows me to do you know make better decisions and you know for the guy out west you could do the same thing hey check i had an encounter with this bull last year or i had an encounter with this antelope or this buck last year or this herd of does was over here and it's just another tool that you can use to journal and document your season on onyx if you want to find out more information about Onyx, visit onyxmaps.com. And if you want to save 20% off your first purchase of Onyx, enter the discount code NATION20, N-A-T-I-O-N-2-0. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. All right, Saddlepalooza 2020 has now come and gone. This is my second time going to the event. Once again, had a blast. Uh, some of you probably remember a couple of years ago I had gone. I don't think it was the first Saddlepalooza. I think it was the second one, the second time that they had it, basically. And I wasn't able to go last year. But I was able to go this year, and it wasn't quite as big of a group uh, as I had remembered a couple of years ago. And part of the reason for that was that it was originally intended to be at a different location than usual. You know, in years previous, it had been at Fort Stewart, Georgia. But Greg, the guy who has basically, you know, booked all of the accommodations at Fort Stewart, was no longer active duty. Uh, so I wasn't able to get that campground. We were planning on going someplace else, a little bit further south in Georgia, big piece of public land. But the problem was in the week leading up to the actual event, there was a whole bunch of flooding. It actually put the whole event at risk. So a couple of days leading up to Saddlepalooza, I didn't know if I was going to have to cancel my flight or not. But fortunately, one of the other guys was able to stop up, somebody who was active duty, and basically booked the campground that we had always gotten at Fort Stewart. So it just basically meant that the whole thing shifted, you know, 45 minutes further north to where it had always been in the past. And, of course, for the people who were doing the organizing, that was a ton of you know, extra logistics last minute to make sure that all the food and the accommodations got moved. And, you know, I think unfortunately some people who uh, had initially planned on going to the first spot, you know, had to cancel just based on the, the, you know, real last minute move, but there was still a pretty good showing. I mean, there must've been, gosh, if I had to guess somewhere between 30 and 50 people total, that's a pretty big range, but I, I didn't, uh, I didn't actually count. Somebody else would probably have a better idea than me, uh, but it was definitely enough to have a really great outing. So 
effectively all I went down there with was just three bags. I went down with my bow case and I had that bow case absolutely stuffed to the brim. And then I had my carry on bag and then I had my personal item, which was my Mr. Ranch pop-up pack and everything was just stuffed. So I didn't bring any, um, apart from a sleeping bag, didn't bring any, you know, tent or any other camping supplies. Greg and Ernie had booked a little trailer to be able to sleep in. So that was basically where I slept the entire trip. Basically two days of hunting, two full days of hunting. So the first day I went out with, there's a group of four of us, Carl Kosuth, Luke Spraggs, Jake Kraft, and myself. And all of us had archery equipment. And the way that Fort Stewart kind of works in terms of not just, you know, hunting for hogs, but just kind of hunting in general is it's just this massive area of, you know, well, I want to say public land. It is public land, but since it is a military base, there's certain areas that are off limits, certain areas that are used for training. And the whole thing is divided into a lot of zones. And so what you have to do is log into an app that's controlled by the base and they'll have a map that's interactive and it'll tell you what zones are open and closed for a given day. And of course you can use that map to figure out where you're going to go, but you also have to check in and check out. It's like the one way that they can control who's going into what unit kind of control, not letting too many people into one specific unit. You know, there's a kind of a cap on how many people can check in uh, electronically, but then also they have the ability to open and close particular units for whatever reason. You know, it could be a, they're going to go to a training exercise in, you know, F7 or whatever the unit ends up being. So given a certain day, you could have 75% of the base open for hunting. You might have 25% of the base open for hunting. It all just depends. So every day of the trip, you're logging into that, you know, iSportsman app and you're looking at where you're going to hunt the next day and, you know, kind of talking around with everybody else and trying to figure it out. Certain units are open to different weapon types as well. So that first day we all had archery equipment. We basically just sorted and looked at the map for what units were open to archery only. Cause in the archery only units, you don't have to wear blaze orange. Whereas if you're in an area that's open to firearms hunting, you still have to wear blaze orange, even if you're going to be hunting with a bow. So we picked out that archery only unit and we walked into it and split up into two groups of two. So Luke and Carl went together and then I went together with Jake Kraft and you know, really the strategy that we were trying to employ wasn't much different than the strategy we would have been trying to do if we had firearms, which was to kind of still hunt through areas that seemed, you know, more or less like they could be good, like areas that had a lot of sign areas that were close to water areas that had, you know, a lot of rooting around or just pig droppings, overall sign, just trying to go through pig rich areas and hope that you stumble upon one. It's basically the best, you know, plan of attack that we really had. And that's pretty similar to what we've done in the past down there. It's not at all. I would say what you would expect when you think of like hog hunting on TV, you know, up in the upper Midwest, we don't have hogs at all. So really the only exposure to hog hunting is what you see on YouTube and what you see on TV. You know, a lot of it might be over feeders. Some of it might be spot and stock, but you always tend to see a lot of pigs and you always hear people talking about how there's pigs everywhere and you, you know, there's no problem ever finding them. Well, that's not always the case down in that, uh, Fort Stewart. And I don't know if that's just because it gets hunted a lot more, if it's because it's public land, obviously there's no feeder. So that's one less thing that you would have to kind of look at as being a concentrating item. So you're, 
you're looking for what their natural food sources are. And from what I can understand, talking to people who hunt down there, is that a lot of the times they'll root around in areas that have really close proximity to water. Some of the stuff that they you know can dig up from the ground ends up being concentrated in those type of locations. Also, it sounds like acorns. You know, if you have an area that has a lot of you know like live oaks, were fairly common down there you'd find those areas kind of rooted up as well where they would kind of dig and, you know, pluck those acorns up either from the ground or on top of the ground. And there was also, I guess, some food plots as well, but they're more spread out. Some people had success over them, but there weren't something that you could, you know, just kind of, you know, guarantee you're going to see animals on or anything like that. So really we're trying to get lucky is basically the gist of how this hunting style was. And going into this area completely blind, Jake and I basically just spread out the best we could, about 40 yards apart or so, just barely enough so that we can kind of see each other. We could kind of look and and know where the other person was at. But if it was thick enough, we would, you know, not necessarily be seeing the same pigs. We could be far enough apart that we could see totally different animals. And if you're going through an area of like palmettos or something like that, if it's thick enough, I mean, you'd have to be right on top of them to be able to see it, which makes you feel a little bit, uh, undergunned, I guess you could say, just because you don't, you have to get that close to something and the odds of walking up to something that close and then being able to get shot off of the bow just seems very unlikely. Uh, but then there's areas where they're a lot more open as well, especially some of those higher ground areas where you're out of the palmettos, they tended to be you know, on the flip side, a lot better visibility, but one of the drawbacks of having that extra visibility, of course, is the pigs could see you as well. And from what I gather, talking to people about those hogs down there is they cannot see great. They can obviously see, but, uh, their vision doesn't appear to be one of their main, um, defense mechanisms. Smell on the other hand, a lot of people say they can smell better than whitetails. So obviously we know how good deer can smell. So you always try to use the wind to your advantage and there'd be definitely places down there where the wind was always swirling that made it seem very challenging. But then there's areas also where you get somewhat of a consistent wind. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do is just kind of use whatever the wind direction was that day and just try and keep it in your face as best as possible. So Jake and I were working through this area we got through a thick patch of palmettos, changed course a little bit, got to an edge of a swamp, went through some water, and then decided to hook back up to the dry land again. And then once we got on the dry land, it was almost just kind of, you know, luck as much as anything. I was messing around with my camera, trying to get some footage. Jake spotted some pigs out of the corner of his eye. Uh, you know, it kind of did that little pause. And then, you know, I caught on to that body movement change and we both kind of locked up, dropped down to the ground, got arrows knocked and, I looked up and we could see a group of what must have been about, you know, 15 or so young pigs. Um, and there was no sow with them, no boar. It was just, they're all the same size. And I don't know if there's, you know, any, it doesn't appear that there's any ethics around whether or not people shoot, you know, a certain age class of pigs by any means for what I gather, it's pretty much you shoot whatever you get a chance to shoot. They're, you know, definitely a nuisance down there and you don't pass anything up. So, we definitely were in the front of our minds going to make a move on these, these pegs and try and get shots. So we knew what direction they were heading. It wasn't totally clear if they had seen us or spooked. It, it might've been that one of them caught something out of the corner of his eye that he wasn't quite 
sure about, and he started, you know, taking off, and then the other part of the group kind of went along with him. It seemed like that could have been the case, but it also could have just been that they happened to be moving through the woods, and that was just how they were when we ended up seeing them. So it was thick enough that we were able to kind of make a move and try to sort of cut them off, get ahead of them. So we both headed that direction, split up maybe 20 yards apart, going parallel. And then uh, Jake whistled and I, you know, stopped again and he could see the pigs moving. I couldn't quite yet at that point. But then I could see some black moving through the uh, the brush. And sure enough, they were not only visible, but they were also kind of headed my direction. And so I drew back and just kind of stay there at full draw. You'll be able to see this on the video, obviously, you know, nice and clear. I had the, the head cam rolling and it got pretty good footage. But these pigs just came in, must have been somewhere between 10 and 15 yards if I had to guess. And they turned broadside and I just picked one of them and put the pin on them and shot. And then, you know, he saw where I hit, he took off, all the rest of the pigs scattered. Jake took a shot too. Um, they were moving. You know, at this point, it wasn't like we stopped the pigs to try and get a shot. He, we basically just took whatever was available. I shot my pig while he was moving. Jake shot at his while it was moving. Um, his was a further shot, and he didn't lead his quite enough. I didn't lead mine quite enough. Uh, he missed right behind his, and then I hit mine further back. So when you're watching the video, you can see that the uh, hog that I shot, there's a an arrow wound like right in the shoulder on the front, and that was the the follow-up shot. So I, the first shot I knew I hit him far back and, uh, we just picked my arrow up right away. Went after that pig, didn't give him any time. There was surprisingly a lot of blood on the ground, uh, for hitting it far back. And we ended up, you know, seeing them basically like 30 yards after where I had initially shot. And I got a second arrow in him. Um, and that was that. So got him skinned up. And of course the, uh, horror stories of all the diseases that feral hogs carry, per Bobby Boswell made me uh, very nervous to got a gut shot pig. But uh, luckily Jake had some extra pair of gloves that I used and we got him gutted and, you know, back to camp, basically skinned him out, quartered him at the pavilion and then, you know, put him in a cooler. So the fortunate thing about that was because there wasn't a lot of meat there, uh, I was able to easily get it back home. And so the method I was able to use to be able to preserve that meat long enough to get it back home and really not cost me any extra money. I guess a few extra dollars, but not much compared to what I would have spent had I not shot anything. I uh, was, I basically went to the grocery store the next day, got a little styrofoam cooler, uh, bought maybe 15 pounds of dry ice. I can't remember the exact quantity, but put that dry ice in that styrofoam cooler with that meat and left it in there overnight. And that meat was just frozen rock solid the next morning, which I expected because I've done that before. I did that in Colorado when I shot my mule deer a couple of years ago and that meat was nice and frozen solid. And then I didn't have any worries about, you know, driving it back. It was really a quick, easy way to get that meat nice and frozen solid. And it obviously doesn't get wet either. That's the, the nice thing about the dry ice versus just, you know, leaving it at a cooler is once that ice melts with the cooler, you get water everywhere. Not at all an issue with the dry ice. So once that meat was solid and frozen, I basically just stuffed it in my bow case. Uh, I had one of those Lakewood bow cases. It's a big rectangular case. I fit my bow in it, and I also fit my saddle in it, fit my single climbing stick in it. Um, I had a little sleeping pad that uh, I stuffed in it as well, just a bunch of odds and ends stuff. Had that thing 
stuff super full and was able to find little bits and or nooks and crannies to be able to put that meat in. And apparently there's, you know, really no, um, nothing with TSA that has any kind of restrictions about, you know, packing meat like that because it didn't have any issues getting it back through airport security on the check bag process and getting it back home. It was thawed by the time I got it back home, but it was still really cold. So I just transferred it right again to the freezer and it was all good to go. So I'm curious in terms of uh, how I should cook this meat. And from what I gather and what people have said on kind of the original Instagram post was that it, uh, it can be really good. From what I hear, the older boars oftentimes do not taste good um, or not very tender or a combination of the both. But a young pig like that should taste you know, pretty tender and, and be good eating. So I have a smoker. And it sounds like that might be a really good option to be able to try and cook this meat. My wife, Sam, she was initially, you know, kind of talking about just grinding some of that meat up and, you know, seasoning it and, you know, basically making a, a pork sausage um, type of recipe or pork patties and making breakfast sausage, you know, sandwiches or something along those lines. So definitely open to uh, recommendations on how exactly I can go ahead and cook that. Uh, so fast forward, I guess, to hunting on day two. So the first day it was with the first group of guys bow hunting. The second day I was, you know, ready to, to use a firearm. And so, um, Catman and I went hunting together the second day and he had seen a couple of pigs the first day in the area that he hunted. It was in a, uh, a firearm area. He was using a, I think a 22 Magnum uh, or some type of 22 caliber rifle and, I was able to borrow a 308 that somebody else had uh, brought and registered to the event. And so we just went through the same area that uh, he had had success in, or I guess had seen pigs in the prior day. And we split up and just covered ground. This area was a little bit more open. So I felt a lot more confident in the fact that if I did see a pig, I'd be able to uh, get close enough to be able to get a really good, you know, high quality shot, uh, at least for the beginning of the hunt as we got later, further and further into the area, it started to get thicker and thicker, but there's a lot of hog sign, uh, definitely a lot more hog sign in that area than in the area that I shot my pig the day prior. A lot of, uh, oak trees in there. Um, a lot of pines in the higher ground. And then we got in some of that lower ground area, a lot of brush, a lot of, uh, areas that were kind of rooted up. And I guess I didn't even mention to this point, the weather, the weather was definitely in our favor for pretty much the entire trip uh, and the fact that it was very cold, you know, more cold than what you would expect on the average temperature scale that time of year in uh, Southeast Georgia. The, it did crack below freezing. I know that for sure. The first day, I want to say it was like mid thirties. Second day, it might've heated up to low forties if I remember correctly. Uh, but you know, below freezing overnight and especially in contrast to two years ago when I was there, when it was significantly warmer, uh, I think that allowed those pigs to be moving a little bit more during daylight hours. So it also allowed us to kind of move through those areas nice and comfortably, no bugs, no fear of, you know, snakes and alligators and all those other uh, kind of cold blooded things that I don't even know how to protect myself from because we don't have them around here. But basically despite, uh, both Catman and I seeing a lot of sign and getting through an area that not only Catman, but also other guys in the group had been through and seen pigs the day prior. 
uh, we weren't able to see any pigs that morning. Uh, we came back in around lunchtime, went to the saddle demo day, which I'll talk a little bit more about in just a second, and then went back out at the uh, in the evening. And in the evening, instead of doing that, again, just kind of walk and, and hope that you stumble upon something, we both decided to hunt out of saddles. And I used my single stick and rappel setup and got up high in one of those big Georgia pines and was kind of overlooking a an open power line type area where I could see a long ways in either direction. And there was a lot of sign, a lot of fresh droppings, as well as old droppings in that clearing. And I could see into the woods some as well. And then cabin was probably 120 yards or so into the woods into an area that was a lot thicker and even more littered with sign. And, you know, unfortunately, neither one of us saw any pigs that night. Um, and that was the last day of hunting for me. That final day, I basically just uh, got everything all situated and packed back up and just, you know, socialized for the rest of the day and and then flew back out. Um, but uh, Catman continued hunting and... He does have a video on his YouTube channel, Catman Outdoors. Uh, if you want to see his synopsis and summary of the entire hunt, it's pretty uh, pretty good, worth watching, I think. So the saddle demo day is basically an event that's been part of Saddlepalooza since probably the beginning. And it's essentially just a time period where everybody gathers around camp and just brings all of their, you know, tools and tricks of the trade and little DIY things and customized things and all their unique climbing methods and just showcases them and gives everybody the opportunity to try certain things. So like, for example, um, Tether had a few phantoms there. People were able to try out Dan Osterhout. I uh, hope I'm saying that right from Michigan. The guy who owns Eastern Woods Outdoors, also known as doublesteps.com. Uh, he brought a bunch of the stuff that he you know, basically resells or, or has custom made for his website. So he had his feather stick uh, out there for showcasing the out on a limb scout platform. He had one of those mounted onto his feather stick. Kyle Klesuth demoed his one stick climbing method along with rappelling, which answered a lot of questions a lot of people had. A lot of people on the Saddle Hunter forum do one stick and rappelling has been around for a long time, but a lot of people still are either pretty new to the concept or still a lot of questions. So being able to see somebody actually demo that was, you know, pretty eye-opening for a few people there. Just got to remember too, a lot of the people there are hardcore saddle hunters have been doing it for a long time, but there's a lot of people there too who are, you know, either on the fence about saddle hunting or they're very new to it, very green, and just really excited to be able to see a lot of these things up close and personal and be able to ask questions for people who have been doing it for a lot longer. Uh, also on the one stick side of things, Luke Sprague's had a couple examples of one stick prototypes that he's built, you know, with the cam cleats and uh, uh, basically a customized, um, I don't know how, how to describe this. We call it, we call it a TIE fighter stick for, uh, for fun, but basically a climbing stick that is as much as possible try to be optimized for one sticking. Uh, they could also be used as a platform once you're up in the tree. Carl had that as well. I have a, a couple samples of that, um, the standoffs basically for that stick. It's probably what I'll be um, using for my, I guess, video that I post about one sticking and repelling, which I've become you know quite fond of, as I've said in other recent podcasts. That said, there are certainly still 
lots of other methods that are very popular that a lot of people love. A lot of people there still had their multi-stick and aider setups. Um, a lot of people like the, uh, the double rope technique method. There's some guys who prefer a single rope technique in terms of platforms. Um, as I'm sure a lot of you guys know, I'm a huge fan of the, the predator platform. Uh, there's a lot of options that are coming out now that offer people the opportunity to either use a similar style platform or a basically modified climbing stick that allows you to be able to use it as a platform in, in and of itself. Uh, like the, uh, the scout platform from out on a limb is an attachment or there's an artesian outdoors that makes an attachment for a climbing stick to be able to utilize that. Uh, and then of course the, the modified, um, machine step or standoff that we use on that, uh, tie fighter stick is also basically another option that would allow you to do it. And my experience is not quite as comfortable as a, a full size platform in order to be able to kind of fully spread the load out, but definitely a very viable option. There's a lot of people I think that are very happy with and satisfied with those type of options. And then of course you still got guys who are big fans of the, the ring of steps and the commercially available options for those, you know, the Bowman outdoors makes a, an injection molded step. And then there's also the squirrel steps that you can find on doublesteps.com. And there's a lot of people too, that not necessarily will run a full ring of steps as a saddle hunting platform, but may run, you know, two or three additional steps just on a strap as a supplement to whatever other platform they happen to be using, especially if they're on kind of a, you know, goofy tree or a really, really large tree where you just want to be able to have a little bit of extra, you know, support to be able to put your foot on as you're swinging around the platform to get to the far side of the tree, something like that's a pretty good option. So one thing that was sort of new to me was the cam cleats and not the concept or the idea. I've known about people using cam cleats for quite a while. Um, and even of course, the Mighty Pro Sticks use those cam cleats. And for a lot of people, they're their very favorite stick attachment method, but I had never actually bought and used one on a DIY climbing stick that I had basically made personally. But I did, after coming home from Saddlepalooza, go ahead and order one and, you know, did some experimenting with it. And the only thing I don't like about the cam cleat is it does make a little bit of a click when you pull your rope out. There may be a way to silence that without uh, affecting the functionality of it. But for a one-stick climbing method where you want to be able to, you know, really quick and easily attach and detach that rope, as well as be able to get it as tight as possible before weighting the stick, it's pretty slick. Uh, I will say that for sure. And there's different sizes you can get and I won't just come out and, you know, recommend like a, a standard size for everybody. There's different models and, you know, there's micros and standards and, and, you know, offshore models of some of these cam cleats that all have different load ratings. One of the tests that I did and found very interesting, and it makes sense when you think about it intuitively is I put a scale in line between basically a Versa button and the strap that goes around the tree to see how much force that rope actually sees. I tried doing it mathematically before and there's just a lot of variables. It's really hard to, to try and calculate something like that. So I just put a scale and measured it. And depending on how much bite you're getting with the climbing stick and the size of the tree and you know the angle that you're of sag that you're getting, you very likely are seeing less load on that rope than what you're actually putting on the stick itself. So what you usually see if you run this, a similar type of test yourself is 
as you kind of set the stick into the tree and you get a good bite, it's going to hold a certain amount of load. Maybe it's 20 pounds, maybe it's 30 pounds of tension or, or what have you. But then once that thing is set, you could put additional weight on top of the stick and it won't be a one-to-one -one correlation with what that tension on the rope is actually seeing. So the first thing I did is I put took a 45-pound plate and I put it on top of the stick and it measured basically an increase from 25 pounds after initially setting it up to 35 pounds. So the addition of that 45 pound weight on the top only increased the poundage by about 10 pounds. Uh, and then I went ahead and took the plate off and stood on top of the stick and the weight only jumped up to 65 pounds was basically the load that you were seeing on that, that rope itself that goes around the tree. And I tried it on a bigger tree and really did my best to try and get that sag as minimized as possible because the less sag you have in theory the you know the higher the force you should be able to see on that rope and I was able to get it up to about like 80 pounds when I'm staying on that stick and granted this was this is a stick that really bites hard into the tree it, like to the point where if you took the strap off it might even still stick so what's happening there is a lot of the load is not just being supported by the rope and tension. It's being supported by the standoffs in the stick. It's also being supported by the rope against the bark on the tree. And a lot of that, that vertical load balance is happening through those items. And the more, the more load that's transferred onto the components of the stick and the rope, you know, holding around the bark of the tree itself, the less that's required to be on that rope in tension on the Versa button or whatever stick attachment method you have. So if you were to run a very similar test on, say for example, you know, like a steel pole uh, with very dull standoffs, you'd expect that force to be much, much higher on tension on the rope. Uh, but it was just kind of an interesting experiment that I did. And I will say that that testing did play into what particular cam cleat that I ended up, you know, purchasing. So if you want to try an experiment like that, I would, you know, recommend going ahead, doing it at ground level, take a scale, put it in line. It works obviously pretty easily with a, a Versa strap or a, a daisy chain type of attachment because you can just hook the scale onto the uh, Versa button and, and through one of the loops on the other side. But just for your own learning, uh, would definitely, you know, doesn't hurt anything to go out and try that experiment for yourself and see what kind of results you get. I know one thing for sure for me, there's still a couple kinks that I need to work out with the one stick method in terms of, you know, how everything exactly is working together and the accessories and how I'm going to carry my bow up the tree, you know, lower it down. I know that just doing it with the method itself is very straightforward. And I know that there's a couple different options. It's not that I can't think of a way to figure out how to do it. It's just, there's, multiple ways to be able to do some of these things and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what's most efficient but I'm at the point now where I think that it's going to be the method most likely I'm going to use more than anything else this fall so it was really nice to be able to you know touch base with guys like Luke guys like Carl at Saddlepalooza and just kind of compare notes and and uh, share learnings to make that process a little bit more streamlined and cut down on the learning curve for myself. Overall, Saddlepalooza this year, definitely a fantastic event. Can't say enough good things about the people that, you know, take basically time out of their 
busy schedules to be able to put that event together, to be able to rent the venue, to be able to get food catered basically every night. It's a really fun group atmosphere. Nobody's got an agenda to push. Everybody's just, you know, really talkative and open-minded. So if it's an event that you think you might be interested in, you know, the best way to gather more information about the event next year would be to number one, join as a member of the saddle hunter forum, because I'm pretty sure that's the main place where the sign up for this type of event is posted. And then also just try and get involved early. You know, usually there's going to be some kind of big announcement thread, you know, winter, or early spring, just kind of, you know, gathering names and, um, and, uh, there, it's not free. There is going to be some cost to cover like the food and thing like th- things like that, but nobody makes a, a profit on it. Uh, all of the leftover money, if there is any leftover money, just goes to basically expenses for the, um, the next year. So definitely check it out. I had a blast as always. I will try to make it again next year if possible. If you guys have any other questions, um, please shoot me a message over on Facebook or, you know, Instagram messenger or, or via email off the website, recording some additional podcast episodes while down there ended up not being super favorable to the, you know, just the overall flow of events and, and whatnot. Uh, but I do have a couple people from the event lined up. We're going to do podcasts, get them on in the next couple episodes. Also, uh, Bobby's going to be back on to uh, do an episode shortly. I got a, a podcast session coming up with Kyle Davidson from DCA Custom Arrows. We're going to do a really deep dive into what makes a good arrow, how to make or build a good arrow, things that matter, things that don't matter, vein configurations, uh, all that good stuff. It's going to be kind of a, a nerdy session a little bit, but hopefully some some really easy key takeaways. So be sure to stay tuned for all that and send me some pig recipes. Thanks for listening.